podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders and to the future in an episode I've called Virtual Reality to Actual Reality. If we're to have any chance of finding that extra 70% of food production with diminishing resources, including water, there's going to have to be an incredibly innovative future ahead of us. And predicting that, I suspect, is a bit like guessing next week's lotto numbers. But we're going to have a go in this episode with two agriminders who work in that space every day. The three Ps of productivity, principles and provenance couldn't be more central to this mission. But where is the low-hanging fruit in our future? Is it robotics? Digital technology? How will we ensure that farmers are not left drowning in data they can't or don't use? And what about controls on new technologies like drones? Will we be allowed to make use of the amazing possibilities that arise from genetic engineering, including artificial food? Indeed, will public distrust or overregulation derail potentially transformational technology? The mind certainly boggles as we try and second-guess the future. Our first agriminder is Mark Pesci. Now, I first met Mark when we were both judges on the ABC TV series The New Inventors in 2005. He's been at the cutting edge of the digital revolution since its virtual inception. He's gained a reputation as a leading futurist, an author and innovator, and he is well known as the host of the Podcast One series, The Next Billion Seconds. I've invited Mark to be our agriminder in this episode to bring his insight into where we're going and what the roadblocks are as we innovate our way through the provision of our future food security. Welcome to Agriminders, Mark. G'day, Chris. So in terms of agriculture, you've got this series, The Next Billion Seconds, and you've talked about a lot of different predictions as we look forward, and a wonderful series it is on Podcast One. In terms of agriculture, though, where do you think we need to go, first of all, in technology to actually use uh, use technology without actually creating more problems than we're solving? So one of the things that we know will be changing a lot in the, in the landscape over the next billion seconds, and for your listeners, a billion seconds from when we're recording this in 2018 is the early part of the year 2050. So that gives you an idea of how long a billion seconds is. By around 2050, agriculture will be using a lot of cheap sensors everywhere. Those will be collecting the data, but the important part will be how we're using that data. And that's going to be a combination of machines that will be analyzing that data, trying to find patterns. But then it's going to be presenting those patterns to farmers, to agriculturists, to people taking care of the land so that they can interpret, they can understand, they can intervene, they can remediate in ways that we haven't been able to before because we haven't had the same view, the same view of the patterns. So as I see it, there are two areas we can probably lump this into. One area is data and sensing and information. And the other area is doing it for us. 
Uh, now, that can might be doing it for animals. Like, for example, we uh, saw some fascinating information about drone bees the other day. So that's replacing a natural thing with an artificial thing. But there's also robotic tractors. There's actual robots in the field doing jobs for us. Um, you know, in those two separate areas, I sometimes think from a data point of view, farmers are suffering from data overload. When we say the words data overload, really what we're saying is we haven't figured out how to present it to the farmer in a way that allows the farmer to make the best use of it with the least amount of effort. Or do you think the data has gone beyond what the robotics can use? Well, I think that really if we got a handle on it, then we would be able to tell the robots what to do with it. This is the problem is that we've collected the data, but we, we've given a lot of thought to how to collect it, but not now a lot of thought about what this means. And that's the human part. That's the part you can't automate. You can get a computer to find patterns in the data. What those patterns mean and what decisions you're going to make about them, that remains a human task and will remain a human task. Maybe if a human does it 30 or 40,000 times, we can teach a computer to do that. But right now, it's really about taking a look at what we've collected and learning from that. And so a lot of what we're in now in this data-centric age is realizing that in some ways, rather than making less work for a farmer, we're in a time when we've created more work for them. So when my father was um, helping his uncle in the Flinders Ranges back in the 20s and 30s, they weren't even sure which paddock he was working in at the time or where he had to take the new draft horses to pull the header. Now we actually know the yield on every square metre of the ground he's using. Now, both are kindly, obviously, extremes of the spectrum. I don't know that a farmer needs to know what the yield of every square metre of his paddock is, and yet that's what a standard header will do now. Well, I mean, it is interesting because we're starting to see now, if you can find the yield over a square metre and you understand the rain inputs and all of the other agricultural inputs in that, you do find the magic numbers in there. And they won't work over every square metre of every paddock. But you are learning something about your land, about your crops, about the mixture, about or how all of the elements come together. And again, it comes back to that idea that we're data rich, but at this point, we're still kind of knowledge poor. Because when if you, if you can realistically ask, I don't know what value that has, that means that we're still in a process of discovery. I don't think we should toss that out as saying there is no value in that. But I think what it means is that we need to spend more time with that and be patient about that, that that process of learning from all of this data gathering isn't going to be as fast as the data gathering. It's going to take time for us as a generation of people who are working in this to understand what these results mean. So, Mark, um, when let's take, for example, satellite sensing. So a farmer can now have his farm looked at and it will tell him where even one weed is growing or a group of weeds are growing. He'll tell him where there's a moisture deficit. Um, and then, you know, if you, we take the technology role further forward, he can either have a massive big machine that will go in and actually turn on and off its sprays and, and will automatically GPS drive around. Them. I've actually sat in these things. You can read the paper while it's doing the work for you. It's an amazing technology. Um, or you can have a whole swarm of little things or even a drone that will actually fly around the paddock looking for a weed and zapping it either with a laser or with a chemical or, or go and go on to the next one. Which way are we going? Are we going to that lots of little ones or are we going towards the one massive one? The answer is both. And it's going to be dependent on what the farm is like, what the need is like, what the terrain is like. Because the thing is with a swarm robot, you can actually work over very uneven terrain, 
which is something you can't do with a very large farm robot. So a large farm robot is beautiful, large, multi-acre paddocks. But if you're talking about something that might work, say, in New Guinea, you're talking about something that's more like a swarm robot. They're fast, they're cheap, they might break, but they're easy to repair. But you deploy a bunch of them and they all sort of communicate with one another. And so the answer isn't one or the other. The answer is that in some situations, it makes sense to bring out the big guns. In a lot of situations, you want to actually use the shotgun shots. So I'll come back to the big guns in a minute. I'm also excited by the idea that in developing in the developing world, one of the key inhibitions to them actually getting their production up in areas where they really need it has been the inability to justify mechanisation on their small subsistence lots. Now, is, is swarm technology allow them to share that so they can actually benefit from mechanisation but by sort of having one computer doing the mechanisation for a whole swag of farms in a cooperative style? So the interesting thing is, is that those folks who don't necessarily have a lot of agricultural kit all have smartphones now, full stop. Five billion people have smartphones now. So even the agriculturalists in hill tribes in New Guinea are using smartphones. Those smartphones are smart enough to drive an agricultural robot. And they have most of the sensors that an agricultural robot needs. Most importantly, they have a camera that can take a look at at the ground to find out whether there's a weed or whether there's a crop or how the crop is doing. And so what you can find is that that will probably slot in just the same way that we might have a, a radio player at home that you put your smartphone in so it can play music. It's the same thing, but you'll slot it in and that will be the farm robot. So sometimes it'll be the smartphone in your hand, but sometimes it'll be the farm robot. That farm robot will be shared among all the different folks within a particular community. Those farm robots are being developed at the University of Sydney now and they're targeting $2,000, which if you amortize across a community across a couple of years is easily affordable and they're designed to be built out of parts that are simple and easily repairable in the community. Can we have a look at the big picture? Like I've spoken to the guys in charge of robotics at some of the really big tractor companies. Now, big was beautiful back when I was, you know, studying ag. I remember Steiger tractors coming out, massive, big, 450 horsepower tractors that could pull a 60 or 80 foot plough behind them, huge things. Then we sort of sent, well, gee, that's too expensive. We've kind of now going to lots of little ones rather than one big one. Um, I now notice that while these big companies have got the capability of having one of these big tractors completely driverless, they actually haven't opted to do that because none of them want to be the first one for one to go ballistic and drive where it shouldn't drive. When, when are we going to get to the stage where we can use driverless technology? So I think what we need to see is that, it, this is also true for driverless automobiles, is that it they look easy in perfect conditions. So a Tesla will drive itself on the highway. And I was on the M1 a couple of weeks ago in the middle of the night. And, you know, the, the driver of the car wanted to give me a, card, uh, a cord to charge my smartphone. He took his hands off the wheel. I freaked out for a second. And then I remembered I was in a Tesla and the car was going to be fine. And he found the cable and he put his hands back on the wheel. So that limited sense. The car was completely fine. But if there had been fog, if there had been rain, if there had been weird obstructions on the road, if there had been obstructed traffic like George Street in Sydney these days, it would have overwhelmed the capacity of the car to be able to think of how to respond. And I think farm equipment's very much in the same category. If it's completely normal, completely standard conditions, then you're right. You really could let it go. 
But it's also very hard for that tractor to know when those conditions are departing from the norm and that it should just stop and wait for a human to step into the cab and take over. And this, I think, is the line that all of the tractor makers are now fighting with, is that we want to make them completely automated. But what we've opted for is to have the human in there reading the paper. This is what researchers in the field call the moral crumple zone, because if it hurts someone or something gets broken or something gets run over, there's a person that you can point the finger of blame at. It's not the machine's fault. The moral crumple zone. That's a great expression. And this is a paranoia they've now got about that. Well, I mean, we've now seen a self-driving car kill a person, right? That happened in Arizona back in March. And it turns out from the forensic analysis that was performed that it was code that had been written that told it to explicitly ignore obstacles. So it was just going to plow through something. So it was bad code. But it was also the human person monitor who was looking away. So the human, the moral crumples under the human being also failed. So it was a dual failure there. And everyone's looking at that. And that's kind of the category definition now. We're like, okay, whether that's a tractor or whether that's a self-driving car, we see the same sorts of failures in there. And are we prepared to accept those failures as the price of doing business? Farm equipment kills people all the time. You and I both know that. It's big and it's dangerous. I think people don't want to frame them as being even more dangerous because they are operating themselves. That's an interesting question. I mean, I know the rifle lobby in America often say that guns kill nobody. It's the person who operates them that kills them. I mean, are we going to start handing ethical decisions over to robotics? Well, and this this is, I think, probably the most lively area in research What's happening to engineering is engineering is not just now a physical discipline. It's starting to become an ethical discipline. And Genevieve Bell, who I've had on the show, is starting an entire program at the ANU called the Autonomy Agency and Assurance Institute because she's really starting to build into engineering discipline the way that we start to ask these questions and think about these things so that we start to think about what the ethics are in design, what are the responsibilities, and how do we build systems that make the right decisions in these situations along ethical frameworks that are similar to what a human would do. Tricky situation. Let's move on. Can I talk a little bit about drones? Now, my sons have both got drones. They they were early adopters, let me tell you, uh, and they both lost drones that have disappeared into the system. Since drones have come in, their restrictions have gone up and up and up. In agriculture, they're talking about a massive potential industry in drones doing all sorts of things. Is drones one of the keys? And if so, how is that going to be actually regulated or controlled so that it actually works, you know, in a, in a, in a agricultural airspace? This, this is a really interesting question. So basically, CASA says that I think everything under about 100 metres is free zone. You can sort of fly around. If it's your own property, you can fly around it. Above 100 metres, they care because then it could be in the way of an aircraft. And so we sort of have this zone where low to the ground... We're going to find a lot of interesting applications that are essentially unregulated. And you can think of all the devices in your house that are wireless because they're using unregulated bits of radio spectrum. All your Bluetooth things sit in that area. And there's a whole bunch of devices and gadgets and uses that pop up in that unregulated region. And I think for drones, that's going to be a really interesting sweet spot. And we're going to see lots of applications pop up in agriculture, in land use, in surveys everything like this because it's underneath that ceiling. Once you get above that ceiling and for a larger farm, that starts to become important. Then you really are going to have to have very strict regulation, CASA certification. Essentially, folks operating drones will need to have 
some version of a pilot's license and some version of air traffic awareness so that they don't get in the way of traffic. Mm. Well, I think they still offer a lot of potential, though, for mustering. I saw some footage the other day of someone mustering his cattle from Sydney with a drone. Yeah, but mustering will be relatively low. That'll be within that Correct. 100 metres. So it's it's one of those things that'll work well. And what you'll see is, is drones working in a swarm, communicating with one another independently of the command that they're being given because essentially what's happening is a command is being given to the drone swarm like a bunch of dogs, and then they're working together real-time using the information that they've got in order to be able to herd the, herd the cattle. Another area we alluded to was, was animal technology, if you like. Um, one particular area in that that I'm interested in is the use of genetics to speed up food production and to artificially produce food. Now, for example, fetal stem cells are being used to make artificial meat. Um, and of course, when we discover technologies that can stop the use of insecticides or increase production, rather than wait for you know generations and years to breed them by Mendelian breeding, we can now splice those genes and do it in a heartbeat. Um, is that going to continue growing at the rate or do you think our ethical worries will stop that happening? Well, there's always going to be that trade-off between productivity and whether you want to call it ethics or concerns about technology running wild. I mean, it comes back to that that basic idea. There's a basic tension there. And I think that in, that our worries aren't going to go away, but neither is our need to be able to drive productivity. And what we need to think about is how do we build in the safeguards so that when we're releasing genetically new species into the wild, so species that we used, and you talk about genetic engineering, it all comes down to one innovation that's called CRISPR, which is a specific, it's an acronym for a technology that literally lets you cut genes as if they're scissors and paper. It's that accurate. You can cut it at one gene, you can stick a series of genes in and then sew it back together. And we've never been able to do that. Now that we can do that, and we can do that with any plant and any animal, all of the doors are open to be able to put pretty much any gene we want anywhere. So we've well, been given the keys to the kingdom, but the question is whether we have the wisdom to use those keys well, and it's still very early days. Well, it's also a question of will the politicians let us open the door? Um, I, I, I can, can I give you a classic example that submergent resistant rice was something that we didn't develop in 2008. Yeah. Now, the genes to do that were known about in 1993 from uh, submergent resistant wild rice that was discovered in India. Mm -hmm. Now, if we'd spliced those genes straight into the cultivars used for grain production then, we would have had a submergent resistant rice and avoided probably three famines in Asia. Right. But because the world said, no, that's GM, it's day of the trip, if it's, you know, that's going to be a disaster. Yeah. We had to do it by Mendelian breeding, which means looking at a crop, finding the plants that exhibit the feature, yeah. growing oh, from cool. them and all this sort of, and it takes years and years and years. Now, I noticed that IRI, which is the International Rice Research Institute, has now more or less said that's all too hard and they're now just going for genetic markers, which allow you to predict where the genes are, but it doesn't involve actual splicing. I wonder whether, and we're actually going to do an episode on this, which I've called genetic modification, is it the baby or the bathwater? Because I don't think we know whether it's the baby or the bathwater. Well, it's really, it's, there's, there's, bits of, there's bits of baby in the bathwater and bits of bathwater in the baby at this point. It's, I mean, we have enormous capacity there. There's no question about that. 
just the things that can be done for human health using CRISPR, being able to actually cure genetic illnesses. And there are the first examples of this. They're still very rare out there, but they exist out there. It's going to make it irresistible. But, you know, you talk about regulating this. I think that there are certain nations that will accept a very high level of regulation around this. So the EU has proven to be very resistant to GMO. Um, America and China, I don't think they're going to care. I think that they're actually going to go whole hog for this. And so we may actually see a real divergence in the way agriculture works over the 21st century. As some areas stay, as you would think of it, almost pure or purer than others around the kinds of genetics that have been used. Now, whether the outcome from something that's been bred, so Mendelian genetics, where you're just crossbreeding and crossbreeding to get a particular gene into something, gives you any different result than actually just sticking it right in there using CRISPR. I don't think people really have the answer to that yet. And in a billion seconds, we'll have some answers to that. But our abilities with CRISPR will be so good, you will probably be able to call someone up and say, okay, this is the plant I need and here are the genes that I need in it. And the next day it will come delivered. Can we talk just very quickly about, I know you've been doing some of your work on uh, on cows and, and in particular, we've always told the cow when she's going to be milked or when she's going to have a calf or when she's even going to eat. You know, we make the decisions, we provide it and then they comply with our management. Now, of course, the latest robotic dairies, we set the dairy up and, and uh, old Daisy just wanders up when she feels like she wants to be milked, has a feed if she's got any left in her allocation, gets milked, and if she gets milked 10 times a day or twice a day, it's largely up to her. I, I, it's very interesting to see the variation in, in how that works. Are we going to see in other industries, do you think, in animal uh, husbandry, where the animals start living us a life of their choice rather than our choice by these sort of robotics? Well, one of the things that we're doing is, of course, we now have trackers on all the animals, so we sort of know where they are most of the time. And a lot of times we didn't really listen to that data unless we needed to know where a particular animal was in the herd. But, of course, one of the things that we learned as soon as we started analysing that data is that cows have friends which no one really thought about. But in fact, cows have cows that they like to hang out with. And so there's all of this social information that isn't exposed to us because we don't speak cow that is actually revealed. And so you think about it in that way. So if you're doing management of these animals, how do you make them feel as comfortable as possible when you're using them for milk or you're raising them for meat? And so some of that's now going to get fed back in. So the more that we can build sensors around these animals, the more expressive they become to us. And now it becomes a process of us listening. And how much do we want to tune into that? How much do we want to negotiate with what their needs are? Finally, Mark, I wonder if we could just talk about crop production in in a world of diminishing arable land, diminishing A, from ecological reasons, and B, because of salinity and the amount of land that just becomes unusable. So increasingly, we're looking at crops being grown in buildings and skyscrapers. In fact, in Japan now, they have whole skyscrapers, multiple floors, with crops growing on every floor. So the same 500 square metres on the ground has got five hectares of, of crop growing on above it. Is that a way of the future? Uh, is that actually a good use of resource considering the amount of power and everything it takes to run that? How is that going to develop over the next billion seconds? What will be interesting to see what kind of closed-loop ecologies they start to build, so we, where you basically have a limited number of inputs. And I remember us seeing something like this on The Inventors where there was a fish farm at the bottom that was... Eco-city pro- farm, it was right, called. That was producing 
the the fish poo that was then being used to fertilize the plant. So it was a real closed-loop system. When you think about the fact that you could be using solar to power the heating and cooling and the lighting for that, then you start to see how these closed-loop systems probably could be economically viable and productive. Will we be using them a lot I wonder about that. I think they're going to be something that will bring some of the benefits of market garden farming to some of the densest urban zones that we see. That's going to be a good thing. Will we be growing grains that way? I think that might be a very different question. Why? Well, because grains require huge amounts of land because they're the primary aspect of our diet. And so really what you're talking about is not just something where you're going to be growing lettuces or carrots or things like that, but you're actually growing the staple foods. And that's a much more serious commitment. You're talking about the equivalent of what we think of as data centers. And computer data centers already use 2% or 3% of all of the electricity generated on Earth just to keep track of our Facebook posts. And so now we're talking about making that kind of commitment to be able to raise our grains. But then again, our productivity is huge. Uh, I mean, when my father was in the Flinders Ranges in the 20s and 30s, he would happily harvest a crop, which is the equivalent of 150 kilos of grain to the hectare. He'd, he'd think that'd be worth taking off. Today, we wouldn't even worry about a crop which wasn't doing probably four to five tonnes. Um, rice production has doubled, at least doubled per hectare since the IR8 revolution back in the 60s when Pearl, Paul Ehrlich was pr- really predicting the end of the world. So our production increases per acre or per hectare have gone up massively. So isn't that going to lend itself more to using these intensive sorts of production? If you're talking about a production inside of a building, again, we we see this being used very economically for specialty crops, whether that's tomatoes, and I know they have a big facility in South Australia where they're growing tomatoes indoors or for for things like that. Whether that's going to translate into grains like rices or corn or wheat, I think is a very different question. We are really used to, and we really have well-developed systems for using large amounts of outdoor land for that. To see that kind of transition in the next billion seconds would imply that we've lost so much arable land that there's no other alternative. I don't think it's going to be that way, but I do think we're going to see a lot of vegetables and whatnot, particularly in in tight urban areas. So you're talking your Shanghai's, your Tokyo's, probably not your Sydney's because we're just not that crowded here being grown that way. Mark, it's been fantastic to catch up again and thank you for your insights into where you're going. Congratulations on Next Billion Seconds. It's a fascinating podcast and anybody who's interested in where we're going, I really commend them to listen to it. It's been great having you in the studio and for being one of our agriminders. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Shortly, we'll hear from our next agriminder, Professor Brett Whelan. Cropping's clearly integral to food production and no area of agriculture has seen a greater explosion in the availability of information and the machinery which can process that into more efficient production. Yet, are we really pushing the envelope? Or have we been slow on the uptake in terms of transforming this data and technology into more food? Someone who's been at the forefront of precision agriculture is Professor Brett Whelan. Brett is the Professor of Precision Agriculture at the University of Sydney and has been at the forefront of bringing automated technology to cropping since the very start of this robotic revolution in 1995. Welcome to AgriMinders, Brett. Thanks very much for having me on. So, Brett, you've seen the evolution over the last 20-odd years. 
where did we come from and would you have dreamed where we're at today or is it not where you thought we'd be? Where, where are we relative to your dreams of 1995? Um, well, we're probably not as far as I thought we would have been in 95, I must admit. Is that generally or is that in a specific area? And if so, which area is probably lagged the most? Well, if if I can confine myself to the area that I know most, so that's cro- broad cropping, um, We've gone ahead in leaps and bounds in terms of using auto steer. Australia leads the world in that. Australia developed the auto steer system and we lead the world. Um, the problem has been that we've got um, such great technology, but in terms of, as I said, the agricultural management, the agronomy management, managing our nutrients or our ameliorants, lime and, and gypsum, variably applying them, we still haven't got a big penetration into the, into the um, ag farming community. It's probably only about 30%. And we were hoping for the more of that to to be evolving. Is that a money thing or is that just that they don't understand it? No, it's, 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 the issue is that we have still a lot of knowledge. We've got a lot of information about above the ground. We've got lots of information about crop yield and reflectance from remote sensing. We have very little information about the soil below the ground in terms of the moisture, the nutrient, the variation of that across the field. And so the interaction obviously is big between in Australia, between water and nutrients and the crop production. And so Without good sensing technologies for deep, for, for into the soil profile, not just the surface, we've, we're lacking some information to, to deal with the variation we're seeing in a, in, a, in a mechanistic way to understand what's causing the variation in the crop yield we're seeing. And so farmers hold back a bit on that. And that's the right, rightly to do so. And so that's where we're working at the moment with the analytics, trying to get that better. So I was talking about this with um, Mark Pesci earlier about whether farmers actually suffer from data overload. There is so much data available and yet their ability to turn that into something that's going to give them extra money in production, you know, is more limited. Yeah, and I think that's a valid valid comment. The, the whole concept here is, you know, precision agriculture is a philosophy, a management philosophy of dealing with variability. And so that cuts across lots of different industries. And so it's the specific. So I deal in crop management, so broad acre crop management. So site specific crop management means you need to um, deal with specific types of data. And I think that's where things are, things are getting a little problematic for people. Yeah. So when you, what, just to find precision agriculture, where did that name come from? Why do we call it that? Oh, that's a good question as well. That st- it started in America as farming by the foot, I think. Um, and the Americans uh, had the ability to very, verily apply nutrients without really knowing why. Before yield monitors were around, they, could, they had technology that could apply fertiliser, so they just decided to do it without being able to check. And we, we looked at that and thought, well, that's not really the way we want to go in Australia. So we've, we've moved away from, from doing that exactly the way they were doing it. But it's, it's, as I said, it's about dealing with the variability that's inherent in, in farming with the goal of uh, optimising our efficiency, our productivity and our profitability. And the, the, the way we do that is by trying to target more decisions per area or more decisions per time around a field or more decisions per animal. So when I, when I was a student at Sydney Uni, uh, people used to just talk about two bags, the acre of this and a tonne to the acre of lime and, you know, you just threw it on, you know, best guess what you needed. So we're now talking, you can actually know exactly what the yield is almost per square metre. Um, so we're now seeing farmers actually having machines driving over the ground, varying all the time how much lime they're putting out or how much superphosphate or whatever. That's the, the, the potential is there. The technology to do that is there. The, the point you made at the beginning that we've got so much data, that the decisions, the, t- the type of decisions and where we want to make those changes is still not there yet. So 
So, so you said that we're not as advanced as you thought we might be by 2018. Um, is there going to be a kind of a catch-up now? Have we sort of caught up or are we starting to accelerate or do you think the growth will continue to be slow and steady? No, I think the, the, the big changes over the last couple of years and what's coming is in analytics and software, so mathematics, analytics and software that's helping us deal with this data. Analytics of what? Analyzing of the data, what? Of the data that we've got, the thing that you said. So we've got, we've got lots of yield data, as you say. Now we're getting remote sensing information. We've got soil information, surrogate soil information, f- highly detailed, but bringing it all together in decision-making process that involves the weather, <laughs> which is the big unknown. That's, that's where we're going at the moment. And so I think it is, it is a, a, a bit of a dawn at the moment again, I think. So in terms of managing farms, both livestock and cropping farms, um, increasingly there is a, a re- I say requirement, but a desire more for people to be able to manage these without having to drive for 200 kilometres to the edge of their property to check if the water's good and move the cattle on to the next place. Um, how's that sort of technology advancing? You know, virtual mustering, uh, virtual fences, um, and, and if you like, weed spraying using drones in, in a sense where you can do it from your home. It's developing quite rapidly, and I think that's the that's a good area for use of drones. Uh, the, the idea of uh, using low-powered wide area networks to control um, gates, control water troughs is is brilliant. Simple ideas, simple use of those sort of things. So how does that work? In what let's way? say a farmer has got, you know, a, a property, they measure them in square kilometres out there. So let's say a guy's got a property out there. I've driven one property where it was 120 kilometres from his front gate to his house. Um, so he's in a big, big property and he wants to actually move his cattle around that property without actually going out or taking planes and helicopters out to do it. Does he use a drone? Does he put ear tags on them and have some sort of electric current or something? Or how does he actually do that? Well, the move, moving them around in those big farms like that is probably still a way away, moving them around. Certainly, certainly um, opening gates and letting them move between, say, paddocks is feasible by having electric solenoids on gates and you can use, as I say, these low-powered wide area networks now that just send little pulses of information that will open gates and shut gates. Moving, herding cattle, I'm not sure that we can do that yet Yet with the drones. The drones are good for going out and checking for them. I don't know that they're yet able to move them like a big helicopter. Yeah, I saw some footage the other day, someone sent me from Banana in Queensland, of him moving a, move, a mob of drought masters around. He was actually training the cattle to work to it. The big feature, he said, that was with a helicopter, he's really limited to not being any lower than maybe 100 or so feet you know, safely, was the drone could be just above their backs. And looking, they had a camera on the drone, so looking at the cattle, looking up and saying, what do you think you're doing? And the chance of them running back against the drone was a lot less than running back underneath a little Robbie 22 that's trying to push them. I, I, I would have thought there was a good future in, in uh, using drones in that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there Just is. Just got to train a drone how to use a stock whip, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's correct. And, and we've got to get them powered. Their the power is a little bit of a problem. So for really big farms, to keeping them powered to get long distances a problem. Right. So, so that's a bit of an issue. And there's work going on with the robotics on the ground to do that. The Sydney University group has a a robot that's being trained to um, to muster from the ground. What about other animal technologies? For example, shearing, milking cows. Where's all that going? Animal industries aren't not my uh, forte. I, I must admit. Um, the the robotic dairying is is going ahead in leaps and bounds. That's um, uh, Laval, I think it is. That's developed that where you know the animals come in by themselves, uh, led by their desire to be fed, but they're brought. They bring themselves in to be milked. They get specific rations when they come in, so they know which animals come in, when it's come in. 
they'll be able to then keep it out again if it tries to come in again. That automatic milking is very, very good. So coming back to cropping, as far as cropping is concerned, you know, um, a lot of the crops uh, that are produced in sophisticated countries which have immediate, they're early adopters of all this technology, are a long way from the people that actually need the feeding. Uh, and, you know, one of the real drawbacks of, of developing world has been their ability to mechanise. So is the mechanisation style that we're developing going to be something that the FAO and the UN can really help those countries produce local crops or is it really just a big rich boys game, you know, in America and Australia and Canada and those places? Well, I guess uh, in defence of that, just versus, we do export a lot of our food over over to places to, to use it. So well, we're we, never going to be the, the food bowl, really. We're a niche no, marketer no. here in many ways. That's that's true. So yes, I think the technology is being developed at different scales, different levels to, to suit that to suit those different um, environments, the different um, markets. So there are smaller little robots being developed for those developing world markets. But again, I think the 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 issue there is that it's not a labour problem that they have over there. It still is some some uh, maybe it's more genetics of the crops and being able to di- to help them deal with managing the genetics maybe more. Uh, okay, so I mean genetics is something that's really more of a chemical technology than than a a mechanical technology. But selection maybe is something that is mechanical. Is it possible when you're breeding crops to use you know sensing on drones to actually do your selection? That's a great point. That's one of the that's one of the biggest uses I think I, I can see in the very near short term of drones is is in cropping anyway is is around the f- phenotyping. So at the moment in the breeding processes they have to measure you know what what the the breeding traits are how they're expressed in the field and they use sensors and they do it by hand. If we can throw the drones across there with a, a whole range of sensors on them, which is what's happening at the moment, then it just speeds that breeding process up incredibly. Yeah. So what's Sydney University got up its sleeve at the moment? Let us into all your secrets. Where, where are you going, you know, in, in what are the latest things that are coming out of Sydney Uni now in this area? I work in cropping. I work with the Robotic Australian Centre for Field Robotics as well and they've, the Robotic Centre is, is developing a range of robots that, that are at uh, the moment focusing on the vegetable industry but are now moving into um, cattle management from where we are in, in cropping and soil, we're, being, we're heavily involved in the idea of this analytics, being able to get a better decisions for farmers, better decisions for the farmers out of the data that they've got already, but also there's a whole lot of free information now becoming available across the planet on soil resources, remote sensing, and we want to be able to bring those things together. What about harvesting? I was reading the other day that someone's now developed a strawberry harvester. Now, a human harvesting, they can harvest about 20 strawberries a minute. I, I, I pick strawberries. I'd be knackered after an hour of that, but that's what they reckon they can do. Whereas a robotic strawberry harvester can do a strawberry a second. So that's that's 60 a minute. That's, a, that's quite a big difference. Is that sort of harvesting, you know, uh, realistic in the near future? Yeah, I think in those high-value crops, I've seen that harvester going in. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. In those high-value crops where they have problems with labour, again, that's they, that most most vegetable crops aren't mechanically harvested. So there's a lot of labour involved in there, and so that's a big cost, huge cost. And so any any way of getting that down is 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 a huge improvement in the business profitability. And so. Yeah, I can see that coming. And what's been the key in developing that machine? Has it been knowing where the strawberry is or the things that grab the strawberries or? Both, both. Okay, and how, do, how has that changed? Well, again, data analytics, being able to process visual 
imagery to be able to identify where the the strawberry is in a green background, so to be able to pick them out properly, but then also to be able to gently remove them and place them in cartons. It's it's a range of linking of, you know, imagery processing, physical manoeuvring of, of arms of robots, physical manoeuvring of the fruit, protecting the fruit. It's and I gather that some of these machines actually can sniff chemicals that indicate the ripeness of the fruit so they can actually make a judgment call on whether they pick that piece of fruit or leave that for another few days and get the one next to it. Again, that, that's uh, I haven't seen that on the market, but that's certainly in development, that's for sure. And a lot of, peop- lot of people are using just visual colour, so ripeness. So, But yes, sensing um, ethylene production, a range of things that they are using, yeah. And Brett, what's the most out there technological development that you've seen or that we're going to see shortly? I've, I've heard about bee drones where they're making tiny little drones a bit bigger than a bee that can do pollination because the bees have been wiped out by varroa mite and, and uh, you know, all these uh, other hive collapse syndrome and so on. What, what else is there out there that's really kind of uh, going to blow our minds when we see it? Well... Uh... Agriculture is a very slow developing industry and I, I don't know that there's anything out there that's going to blow our minds. I, I agree with you. That idea of having very, very small swarm robots um, is is an, an out there idea for a big broad acre agriculture, that's for sure. I think I, the people promoting that idea, promoting that sort of idea as well for sowing and spraying, and spraying herbicides to actually have little robots going out and sowing, I think that is an out there idea. And in terms of, I'm not sure that it'll get going in in that sort of thing. But for for orchards, as you're mentioning, that sort of thing is a possibility. Brett, you've got one of those jobs that I think all of us would love to be in, where you're working with all these exciting gadgets every day. I'm a gadget freak. It's been fantastic having you as one of our agri miners in the studio today. Thank you so much for your up to date, bringing us up to date on where that technology is going. No problem, Chris. Thanks very much for having me. Predicting the future for agriculture, like most other things, is like forecasting the weather 12 months out. But if anyone should be able to guide us, it's our two agriminders, Mark Pesci and Brett Whelan, as they flirted with technology and robotics. The main question for me is whether we'll keep up with the opportunities on offer as they arise. How many times have we dropped the ball on potentially amazing technologies because of a fear of our own human inadequacy. How big or inhibiting will Mark's moral crumple zone need to be to satisfy a risk-averse society egged on by lawyers to be too fond of litigating from the hip? Conversely, science is not infallible, and we need to accept that there will be slips and falls along the way, like mad cow disease and cane toads. But in my view, the maintenance of equal tension between our three Ps, productivity, principles and provenance, driven by our current crop of BrightSpark students as they join the profession, but carefully audited by our finest and most experienced elder statesmen of the agricultural profession, is probably our best chance to steer us towards finding that 70% of additional food that we need in the next 50 years. They say that good luck is where preparation meets opportunity. So on that basis, we can all wish ourselves good luck because the opportunities are right there, just awaiting realisation. Join us again on AgriMinders. 
Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.